Welcome to the IFE podcast series. In this podcast, we bring you an IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture with Raya Hatzel, a Senior Research Scientist at Google DeepMind, one of the world's leading artificial intelligence organisations. Raya's lecture is entitled Deep Reinforcement Learning in the Real World and was delivered at QUT's Gardens Point campus in Brisbane on Thursday 10th of August 2017. We really hope you enjoy this IFE podcast. So I'm going to talk about deep reinforcement learning and complex environments. I think it shows some of our most recent research in the areas that I think are most exciting, my research as well as some of my, uh, my colleagues there. We have intelligent beings uh, and intelligent organisms in our world because of evolution. And the process that gives rise to that intelligence is the uh, is, is the fact that evolution drives increasing complexity. And when I talk about complexity, I don't just mean the complexity of the actual organism that is becoming intelligent, as in the development of mind and complex mind and body, but I also mean the complexity of the environment in which that organism lives. And when we think about developing artificial intelligence, we think about learning algorithms, and we think about learning environments for those algorithms. Um, and that's sort of one of the fundamental premises of what we study at DeepMind. And I think that complexity, embracing complexity, uh, has to be a fund fundamental part of, of that. Intelligent beings are complex, and we live in a complex world. And so we need to understand how we can scale our algorithms uh, to be complex. So thinking about algorithm complexity, uh, I mean, I'm from a machine learning background, and we often like actually very simple approaches because simple means generalization. It means that it will be widely applicable. But there's a dilemma there because we, we do need to have that, that complexity. And, of course, things that we initially think are too complex to be useful, widely useful in machine learning, um, I would point to things like convolutional networks, or more recently, GANs. Um, we think, oh, that's a very complicated structure. It's got a lot of parameters, and it's hard to train. Um, but then they end up becoming the bread and butter of very powerful machine learning systems. So I think I've just thrown out a few different things here from, from decades ago or more recently that I think are very important advances in developing architectures that are complex enough to scale to difficult problems, recurrent architectures, which is fundamental towards developing something that starts to look like artificial intelligence can maintain state, and architectures or algorithms that deal with more cognitive features of learning like memory or attention uh, or meta-learning. But as I said, the learning algorithm is only half of it. We also have to think about the environment. Environment complexity is what allows a learning algorithm to either show what it can do or fail. And when we think about complex environments, we think about having rich variability. Uh, so simulators, uh, if we're using simulators, that can be, be procedurally generated or have different sources of noise having physics so that the learning algorithms are learning something that is grounded, um, and having complex tasks such that the algorithms can learn to have higher-level behaviors or uh, skills. Now, interactive environments, if we're interested in doing reinforcement learning, which is what we largely do at DeepMind, then we need to have interactive environments for an agent to learn in. There are 
many existing human games that have been repurposed as environments. And this is for uh, a good reason. So, so we have here on the left uh, the arcade learning environment, which is a set of Atari games, which has been widely used. And more recently, OpenAI uh, came out with Universe, which gives a really, really rich selection of different um, games and uh, other, other applications to be used as, as interactive environments for agents to learn in. And these are very useful. Re reusing these existing games allow us to get at some of the aspects of, of human intelligence that are there. If, if these games are challenging and interesting to us, then they are of value of learning by an agent. And they also bring with them a an automatic, a built-in reward system or a built-in scoring system that allows us to compare the performance of different agents against each other, different learning algorithms against each other, or different learning algorithms against human players in these games. So that is where we've gotten most of these different grand challenges from. Some of them have been solved and some of them have not. These have all been posited as being human versus AI uh, challenges. And so Batgammon was solved by Jerry Tesoro at IBM uh, quite a while ago using, using, using TD Learning. Uh, chess, Jeopardy, Go, uh, all solved. Most recently, poker has been really the, the hardest variants of poker. Um, An AI beat uh, human expert players. Angry Birds is not yet solved. So... If you need a PhD project and you want to, you know, hang a grand challenge on your wall, um, Angry Birds. Uh, although the, the next uh, human versus AI Angry Birds competition is going to be held at Ijikai in a couple weeks in Melbourne. So that maybe, maybe it's done. I don't know. Um, RoboCup is a challenge. The, the objective of RoboCup is that by 2015 that we would have a fully robot team that would be able to beat the current human World Cup champions. Luckily, we have a couple decades to work on that. Um, and StarCraft is certainly not yet solved, but there's some interesting work going on there. And I think there is an announcement by DeepMind just today about a data set, an API that we've released for working on StarCraft. There are some great environment platforms now for research because there's so much interest in doing in working with envir interactive environments and training agents. So there's DeepMind Lab, there's VizDoom, uh, OpenAI Gym, and Project Malmo is for doing Minecraft, for developing Minecraft environments. All right, so that brings me to the main part of this talk, which I'm going to talk about a few different algorithms and a few different uh, environments. And I think these all show some directions that we're going where we're looking at things uh, that are starting to scale up to more interesting, complex problems. So first of all, let's talk about hierarchical RL in the setting of Montezuma's Revenge. So Montezuma's Revenge is usually qualified with the word infamous or other other adjectives, um, because it's very hard. It's one of the Atari games, and the reward signal is very weak or delayed. It's hard for the network to generalize, um, and, and the agents typically just die very quickly, and it's hard to get learning started in this environment. Humans, of course, use concepts like keys are good and ropes should be swung on and uh, skulls are bad to quickly learn in this environment. If we could abstract away some of the primitive actions and have a coarser temporal resolution, then that might allow us to start to learn in this 
in this game. So one idea is to use sub-goals. And if instead of having low-level actions, if we had these larger goals, if our actions were in this goal space where you would jump from part of the screen to another part of the screen, then that might allow us to easily learn sub-policies to achieve those sub-goals and thus be able to get some traction in the problem. So that's exactly what the idea of hierarchical reinforcement learning is. If we could solve, if we could have a good system for HRL, we would be able to do long-term credit assignment across these sub-goals, um, which functions as memory. We would be able to do structured exploration and better transfer learning. So how are we going to try to do hierarchical RL? We're going to start with a paper that's a couple of decades old by Peter Diane and Jeff Hinton. One should not ignore papers that are a couple of decades old from Peter Diane and Jeff Hinton. This is called Feudal Reinforcement Learning. And uh, the idea here is it's a little bit similar to a convolutional neural network. The idea is to have, have multiple levels where the abstraction um, increases through the levels and the temporal re resolution decreases, or vice versa. The idea is to be able to have a, uh, a hierarchy that's over the behavior space or the policy space of the agent rather than a confnet, which works in the, simply in the visual structure, visual space. So starting with this as an initial uh, starting point, so feudal networks, that feudal RL uses an explicit goal representation between the different levels. And this wouldn't work for neural networks the way that, that uh, we train them. And there's a few other significant differences. But uh, so my, co my colleague Sasha at, uh, led this research at DeepMind. And he came up with a, with a way to make this work very well with neural networks. And this is just looking at two levels, which I'll call the manager level and the worker, worker level. But there's an obvious generalization to more levels of a hierarchy. We start out with the input image, the RGB input image, and feed this through a convolutional neural network so that we have a common visual feature space. We can then feed the visual features into these two different modules. One of them is the manager, one is the worker. The manager uses something called a dilated LSTM, which is going to produce outputs a little bit more slowly, but still see all the data. It's similar to, in principle, to a dilated convolutional neural network, if, if you know that, that architecture. The output of this dilated LSTM is going to be a, simply a latent state representation, which we're going to think of as a goal. And that goal gets sent to the LSTM of the worker, the worker tries to match its current state with the state that it's received as a goal. So the goal says to it, get to this point in the screen, uh, make your world look like this, and the worker tries to do that by actually taking the actions. And the way in which we train this is by the worker is trained by a combination of two... Um, um, two loss functions. One is a policy gradient, so directly trying to maximize uh, a reward. And the second is the, uh, a goal-matching reward. So this is if it has uh, managed to make its internal state representation match the goal that's been given by the, the manager. The manager train is trained using a transitional policy gradient. It basically assumes that the worker is going to follow its instructions, and that allows it to say, I'm now going to be able to reason 
over a larger uh, time scale, lar a larger basis. So does it work? There's no other knowledge that's put in here. This is simply then trained end-to-end -end, uh, with the hope that it all starts to work out and that sub-goals uh, goals start to emerge. Um, and, and we do see that happening. So first on the left here, we have a learning curve. And the blue noisy curve is the feudal networks. And uh, here, we actually like that amount of variance because it means that learning and exploration such is happening. The green line below it is, is if you just use a single, an LSTM agent. On the right hand here, so it does, it does quite well. Not as, not as good as a human, but it does well. And on the, the right here, we see sort of a, a, it's a, a histogram of places where the workers has managed to match the goal given it to, the, to it by the manager. Um, so these are places where the manager often gives a goal for that state and the worker often uh, gets close to it. And so we see that these are exactly the sort of sub-goals that we would like to see. This is the jump from platform to platform. The next one is going down the ladder, uh, jumping down, and then getting the key is the, the largest peak for this level. It manages to come to the second screen, go down the ladder, get the sword, come back, kill one with the sword, and then, and then get killed. And pretty much after that, it's flailing around, which means that this is um, worse than any of you would probably do at, at, at this game, but is still something that uh, we hadn't seen any progress in this game be, being made at all. So uh, I think that this is that looking at hierarchical reinforcement learning is one way that we can manage to uh, start to build much more complex structure into these policies that are being learned uh, end to end uh, purely from from experience. So having more levels and you know more more complexity might allow us to solve these things that have very long delayed rewards. The next topic I'll talk about is continual learning, a set of continual learning algorithms that we've used to handle uh, environments that are composed of multiple tasks. So we can compose multiple tasks different ways, and uh, this, this certainly makes the problem harder. Uh, we, we can simply say that we want to be able to have a high-level performance on a set of tasks altogether. That would be multitask learning. Maybe we want to go from task to task to task in a continual learning sense. So uh, being able to go from learning A to B to C and not forgetting A. We could also think about this problem as being a sequence of unlabeled tasks. So we don't know what we're playing and, um, or we could think about the maybe the hardest case where tasks continually change and we want to maintain performance on the whole spectrum of different sort of experiences that we've had. I'm going to look more at the, the case of the continual learning case, um, where what we worry about here is, is the phenomenon of catastrophic forgetting. So this has always this has been a known problem with neural networks for a very long time, but it's especially severe in deep reinforcement learning. So this little graph here shows an agent that has a full performance, meaning that it always wins in the game of Pong gets a one. If we add noise, uniform noise, to the weights of the network, then as soon as, then, then very quickly, the performance of that agent at Pong falls off the cliff and it gets now zero. It's always losing. 
And this is because uh, when we, we when we train these agents to sort of super, superhuman level, then we're really training a, a very uh, precise policy that does not do well with perturbation. And we can look at an illustration of this by looking at what happens if we add noise in the input space. So first let's look at what a good agent does, a winning agent. So this agent will get to a score of, of 20 to 0. Um, the agent is on the right, the green paddle, and uh, the computer is, is on the left. All right, so it sort of bounces around, but it, it's a perfect player. Now what happens, let's look at the left, what happens if we make a small change to the input? So I don't know if you even notice what the change is that we've made here. All we've done is we've changed the opponent paddle, though, the computer paddle, to black. And now although the agent is still sort of jittering around and almost looking reasonable, it actually is going to lose this 0 to 20 instead of winning 20 to 0. So that's not good. Um, if we add some Gaussian noise to the input, uh, again, we wouldn't. We, we would like if this didn't affect the performance of the agent at all. But again, it really cannot play. And if we really want to see catastrophic failure, then we can simply invert the color. It just gives up entirely. So the method that we came up with, uh, which was published earlier this year, um, is called elastic weight consolidation. And the idea here is that if, you're if you have been training on task A, learning task A, then you will get to an area of, of good performance in your parameter space, which we'll call theta star. If you then want to start playing task B, and you simply keep on training that network using stochastic gradient descent, then you're going to quickly leave uh, that optimal area, that trust region, and you're going to end up um, catastrophically forgetting how to play, how to, how to uh, perform on task A. You could add, say, an L2 regularization to keep you closer to these weights, but that's, not, that's simply going to mean that you don't learn task B. It's not going to mean that you... Uh, um, it's not going to solve the problem. What we would like is to perhaps get to this area of the space where we have protected the parameters that are important for our performance on task A while still being able to train the network for task B. So doing that nuanced protection of some of the weights, we're basically, uh, think about it as having changing the synaptic plasticity based on the, based on the part of the parameter space which is most important for that game. So the loss function that, that we proposed in this paper is that we're going to train on task B using a, our standard loss, and we're going to add a regularizer, which is a quadratic penalty pulling us back towards theta star, which we learned on task A, but scaling it by Fi, which is the uh, Fisher, uh, an approximation to the Fisher information matrix. And this scaling will allow us to precisely protect that part of the weight space, which is critical towards for task A, while allowing us to change the rest of the parameters and still learn task B. And as a little demonstration of, of, of the fact that the Fisher is a reasonable measure of this, if we scale the weights, sorry, if instead of adding uniform noise to our parameters there for our Pong agent, if we instead uh, add them scaled by the inverse of the fissure, then what we get is much more stable performance before eventually falling off the cliff. And this allowed us to train on learn 10 
Atari games in sequence with a single uh, neural network and not forget those games. So I'd refer you to the paper for more, for more details on that. But the question is, what if my tasks really don't get along? What if I want to sort of free myself to use multiple different, um, to use an ensemble architecture instead of a single neural network? We worked on a method called progressive neural networks, which, and the idea, the key idea here is that as opposed to trying to cram all of our different tasks into a single neural network, we're going to uh, use a, a column architecture here. So as we learn, we learn a single column on a game, and then when we want to learn a new task or a new game, we add another column, we freeze the first one so we don't change the weights anymore, and we train the, and we train the new column, and we add layer-wise connections between each of the layers, the previous columns, to the new column. And that allows us to reuse, sort of opportunistically reuse any features that we learned in previous tasks that might be useful for my current one. But if none of those features are useful, then I can also learn task-specific features because I have this new capacity of this new column that I've added. Um, and obviously this doesn't scale forever. Um, we, we can't add uh, an infinite number of tasks. But we do see that with each column that gets added, it can be smaller and smaller and smaller because we're reusing so much of the previous uh, learned features. We can also think about a, another architecture. And this is a paper that we just put on archive a couple of weeks ago, so you probably haven't seen this. Um, it's called DISTRAL, where DISTRAL stands for just Distill and Transfer Learning. And here we think about having uh, a set of games that we're going to try to learn. Uh, and so we're going to have a task-specific policy that we can learn for each one of these. I, I learn here four different games at the same time. And I maintain a separate policy uh, and, and network for each one of them. At the same time, I have a shared policy that I'm learning. Um, and I'm learning this by using a KL constraint that sort of ties together each task-specific speci network to this shared one. That means that that shared policy becomes a communication channel between tasks and allows us to do transfer learning between different games. So the KL, using a KL constraint, KL divergence constraint, between the different policies and the shared policy um, is effectively the same as having distillation happen. If you're familiar with, with uh, knowledge distillation, then that's having distillation of knowledge into the shared model. That's going to allow transfer to the tasks. It also means that we are adding a regularization. So as each of those task-specific learners... Uh, learns, then they are using the shared model as a regularizer. And that gives that learning, that task-specific learning, stability and robustness to hyperparameter uh, selection or to trickiness in learning in different environments. So we've had this running for quite a while at DeepMind on about 20 different tasks together. Um, and we see that the rate of the, the learning curves are increased for all of the tasks, um, and it allows us to learn a wide diversity of tasks at the same time because we have these task-specific policies. And in particular, I'll just pull out two of those environments um, that we're training on, two of the 20. So one of them on the left here is from DeepMind uh, Lab, and this is a maze where you are uh, searching for apples, just trying to pick up all of the apples. 
And the second one on the right uh, is what we call natural labyrinth. And uh, here it's exactly the same. It's an exploration problem where the agent gets one point for each mushroom cluster that it can can grab. The fact that we can have a very high-performing policy, um, very good policy on both of these different games and and actually have transfer learning happen between the two of them such that they're accelerated by their commonalities is is a, a nice validation of this architecture. Next chapter... Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about auxiliary tasks and how they can be used to speed up learning uh, and improve learning in the in lab mazes, as in a, lab or, or a set of DeepMind lab mazes. At DeepMind a couple of years ago, I thought that we really needed to have a set of mazes that would be procedural so that they could be changed on every single episode, where you might have a very large maze, but you always only ever see this uh, first-person view, and where you've got a single goal that you're trying to find, um, as, as well as some apples scattered around to help facilitate learn exploration. The game works um, in this way. So, so we spent a while working on this and making up these, these episodes, these environments, and they've been very useful to a lot of researchers uh, at DeepMind and elsewhere. So the agent is randomly starts somewhere in this environment, and it has to find the goal, um, which is worth 10 points. And then if it finds the goal, then it teleports randomly. It respawns somewhere in the maze. It needs to figure out where it is and refine the goal and repeat um, for a fixed length of episode. And we can have different variants on this. We can make the maze smaller or larger. Uh, we can use have the st- maze be static um, and with a static goal location. But, of course, the agent is spawned randomly at, at each point that it gets the goal and at the be- beginning of the episode. Uh, we can also think about having the, the goal location be random, so that's a real explore-exploit. At the beginning of the episode, you explore to find where, the, uh, where the, the goal is, and then you exploit by returning back there as quickly as you can for the rest of the episode. Uh, or we can make everything random. So the approach that we, that we use starts with an A3C architecture. So that uh, A3C architecture is, this is an agent and algorithm from Vlad Minet and others at DeepMind uh, from last year called uh, Asynchronous Methods for Deep Reinforcement Learning. Uh, The architecture that's presented there is a convolutional encoders, feature extractor, followed by optionally an LSTM layer. And then the output is an actor-critic reinforcement learning. And I won't go into the to the details of that, but that's what is used as the sort of core learning algorithm for these agents. Now, when we started thinking about navigation, we changed this architecture a little bit. So instead of having a single LSTM layer, we added a stacked LSTM layer uh, with a skip connection from the, the convolutional layer. And we added additional inputs. So the reward from the last time step is input as an observation. The current velocity, rotational and translational velocity, in the coordinate frame of the agent. And the previous action of the agent are all input. And then we train it using A3C, so it has a policy output and also a value function output. The, the key thing that we added was to, we started to think about auxiliary tasks. And the auxiliary tra- tasks that we added, so this basically is going to be just another loss function, and we're going to compute the gradients for this loss function and add it to the gradients that we've computed from the, uh, from the actor-critic learning and uh, just backprop them through the whole model, uh, sum together. 
And the auxiliary task that we decided to experiment with was uh, depth prediction. So instead of sending in depth as an observation to the agent, we're going to use depth as a something to be predicted, as a target. And we can either add that depth prediction, which is uh, an, a single-layer MLP. We can either add that at the after the convnet, so as an output from the visual features, or we can add it on top of the LSTM. And we're not predicting the entire uh, depth, full resolution depth of the image, but rather just this coarse, uh, coarse depth information at the center of the screen. The second auxiliary task that we tried adding is a loop close, closure predictor, sort of inspired a bit by, uh, by SLAM. We wanted to have the agent predict Bernoulli weather variable, whether or not it had retraced its own steps within that episode. And that's added on to the LSTM since it requires memory to be able to answer that, that prediction of loop closure. Uh, so for the results, we, we looked at a few different architectures here. Starting on the left, we ha have just a feed-forward A3C agent. Secondly, we have the agent with memory added with the LSTM layer. Third, we've added the extra plumbing here and extra inputs um, and the second LSTM layer. And fourth, we add on these auxiliary tasks. So let's look at how these do, these different variants do, on a large maze with a, with a statical location. So this is a 10-minute long episode. It actually is a fairly long exercise. Um, humans ha take a while to be able to learn and do well at this task. And first, the feed-forward A3C agent takes a long time to uh, start to learn, going to 100 million steps here over the course of this, of this learning. If we add the LSTM and have the recurrent A3C agent, then it certainly eventually does better, but it takes a very long time to start learning. If we add the extra LSTM layer and the other uh, inputs for the sort of navigation style agent, then we get uh, maybe a little bit better performance, but it's, it starts to become unstable. When we add the loop prediction as an auxiliary task, then we do see a speed up in learning and how quick, where that takeoff takes off that we're looking for. And it takes off considerably earlier um, than if we don't use it. But the learning is fairly unstable, which is not something that we, we like to see with reinforcement learning. If we add depth as a uh, prediction uh, on the convnet features, then we get a much, much faster takeoff of learning, which is really in incredibly valuable for these sorts of problems, we also see a, a, a higher final uh, performance. And this is as asymptotically, it stays higher than any of the other agents. We could also try adding that depth prediction on the LSTM, and we get even a better, better final performance. Um, and if we add it, all three of them together, depth one, depth two, and loop, then we get a little bit faster, even faster takeoff early on. Um, but the final performance is best if we just use the depth prediction on the LSTM. And compared to human, we do, we do beat humans at this. Expert human player, much better than I can do on this game. And we did try, I don't have the results here, they're in the paper, 
But we did also try, since depth is so important, you might say, why don't we just feed it in as an observation? If you feed it in as an observation, you don't do anywhere near as well. It still takes a very long time to learn. You do get to a high performance, but it takes a very long time to learn. And this is because the value of doing the depth prediction is in those dense, stable, meaningful gradients that are being propagated through and acting as a scaffolding for the reinforcement learning to take hold and start to take off. So this is how the agent looks running around. Um, this is a random goal case. So the maze is a fixed topology, but the goal is in a random location on each episode. And here is an overlay of the depth prediction. So this is what the agent is predicting. And you can see that um, the, the value in here is, is that it gives some coarse geometric interpretation of the scene, which presumably is, is valuable. And if you look closely at the value function here that we're plotting, it correctly uh, anticipates getting to the goal each time, um, which is what we would hope to see uh, using its memory and learning, learning the maze. And in, another, in a related approach, uh, another group at DeepMind, Max Yatterberg and others, uh, were also working on auxiliary tasks. And they took a slightly different approach. Uh, they thought about how could we improve the learning by teaching the agent how to control its sensory motor data? And by that I mean, let's train an additional policy that predicts how to maximize the pixel differences in different parts of the image based on my actions. So what are the actions that would change the pixel intensity in one region of the image, or in this region of the image, or in this region of the image? So how do my actions change what I see? The interesting thing is that this, this is policy is, is trained using Q-learning. It's never actually executed. But simply that training signal helps you at the training the other policy, which is maximizing reward. And to do this, then, they train an auxiliary uh, deconvolutional layer in order to produce the uh, Q values. In this work by Max and others, then they also used a replay buffer in order to use more data and be able to balance the data, the experience, and learn from it. So they have their standard online training of the A3C agent proceeds, and all of the experience goes into a replay buffer. Then that buffer is sampled from, um, at the same time that we're doing this online training, we're also sampling from that and, uh, and, and learning from short sequences to do either value function replay or to do reward prediction. This also significantly helps in learning. Uh, it helps in uh, speeding up learning and also making learning more robust and getting to final uh, to higher scores. And we can see how this looks on a couple of environments here. They tested this on a, a, all of the DeepMind lab environments. So first we have called Seekavoid. We're trying to eat all the apples and leave the lemons. This is a very easy one for agents to learn. A stairway to melon. This one's very challenging. You need to pick the right uh, stairs to go up in order to find the melon. So it's a memory task where you get an initial cue. These are more. These are the same navigation mazes that were shown in the the previous agent. Then we can also see how the agent does um, at the uh, laser tag levels. And for more details, you can um, take a look at the paper. Take a look at this video online. Lots of interesting things here.
All right. So the next environment that I'll talk about is a brand new one. Uh, we actually haven't published this yet, so there's nothing to look up. So you just get a, a bit of a teaser now, and hopefully we'll have something out by the end of the summer. I have always been interested in navigation. Uh, I have been enjoying using our simulated mazes, but I'm a little bit frustrated that they are simulations and obviously not very realistic. So uh, we started thinking last year about what would navigation mazes look like in the real world. And I think that they would look like New York City. In the same way that we have an underlying structure, which is unobserved in the navigation mazes, um, and an observation, which is a first-person view and is an image format, in the same way, we constructed, we started to look at street view. Because what street view gives us is an underlying graph nodes and edges. It gives a structure, but is not observed. And observation, which is the RGB image, which is observed. So we created an RL environment out of street, learn, out of street view and named it street learn. In street view, there are nodes and edges. Each node is a, is a panorama. From that panorama, we can crop um, our, the particular viewpoint that we want. And we just crop out an 84 by 84 piece, obviously unwarp it. So we're going to send that to the agent that we're going to train, and we're also going to send a goal location. I'll say what that is uh, in, in a couple of slides. And, of course, we can have actions in this RL environment, and our actions are that we can rotate around, so we can, we can look up, we can look down, we can look left, we can look right. Um, and we put this as a discrete motion. It could be a continuous action as well. Um, and then you can move to the next node if there is a next node ahead of you. Otherwise, that's just a no-op action. So let's take a look at some examples from this uh, environment that we worked on. Of course, there's Street View all over the world. We chose to start uh, to focus on New York City to start with. So there's all sorts of, um, you think about Manhattan graph as being a Manhattan graph, but it's not actually. Um, there's lots of diagonal lines. There's lots of crazy intersections um, that, are, that are tricky to navigate. In this case, we have a park um, entrance that looks a bit like a road, but it's not because uh, the Street View vehicle did not go through Washington Square Park. Here's the West Side Highway, so that highway and sort of having some on-ramps and off-ramps is part of the, part of the, the data set that we, that we used. And there are curved roads. There are also tunnels. There really are tunnels. Have to get to Jersey somehow. So the task that we constructed is the following. We modeled it. We thought about it as a, as a taxi task. Step one, you spawn randomly somewhere in this big graph. Um, the graph I'm showing you here has about 150,000 nodes in it. We used a, a smaller subset of that with, I think, about 20,000 nodes in it. But you spawn randomly, and then you navigate to a target location that's given to you. So taxi driver, take me to this address. Um, some of the nodes uh, in the graph, 1% of them, have a small reward attached to that, similarly to the apples in the navigation maze. You start re receiving reward when you're close to the target within 400 meters, so it's a, bit of, it's a linearly shaped reward uh, around, the, uh, around the target location. And if the target location is reached, then you immediately uh, are given a new target to get to, and you have to navigate to that new target. The agent that we worked on, well, first let me, let me tell you what the target representation is. Right. If you're 
if you're taking a taxi, you need to give you need to give something. Usually we use an address, but we didn't think that that would make sense here. So we tried two different things. One is to feed in um, the uh, XY location, so something like an address, uh, but as one hot vectors. So just to discretize um, the XY space of Manhattan and specify as one hot location. We also tried using distances to landmarks, so that's equivalent to saying, uh, take me to the location that is two blocks south of the Empire State Building and west of Broadway. So let's take a look at the architecture we came up with. The core of the architecture is, is similar to the A3C agent that we've already um, been using and, and looked at. Feed in the image to a convolutional neural network, have an LSTM, and have a policy and value output. Then we've added these two additional pathways. So first we have a global pathway uh, where we're going to take also the features, uh, the, the visual features, but also that target specification, put them through an LSTM, and we're going to help this training by using an auxiliary task that's the absolute heading pred prediction. So north, south, east, west in 16 bins. On the other side, we have yet another LSTM, the more the better. And this is trained using this. Uh, we get the visual features, but also the reward and the action. And the idea here is that this should be relative. This shouldn't have any absolute information in it. Um, and this is trained using um, prediction of the local neighbors in the graph, where the edges are from the current uh, image, the current location. And then just a quick video of how this is doing. All right, at the beginning, the agent spun around, random, uh, spun around uh, a few times uh, because it's trying to figure out where it is. Right? It has just an image that it gets, and it spawns somewhere randomly. So the first thing it has to say is, where the heck am I again? Then it's able to navigate to the goal location that's given to it. Um, and you can see that's, given, that's shown by the red dot here in the graph. So once it gets close enough, you're going to see that disappear, and now a new random location appears that it has to get to. Down here at the bottom, then what we're showing here is a uh, decoding. So we, we try to decode the agent position and the target position from the LSTM uh, hidden representation. And we put a stop gradient on these decoders, so all they're acting is it's sort of a, um, we're trying to figure out if the representation encodes position, uh, which it certainly does seem to. So it's going to come all the way down here. You can see the diversity of the area that, that it's going through. It's quite remarkable, actually. comes all the way down here, and we've sort of artificially cut this graph. So it tries to go that way, but there's no edge there. Um, because of how the graph was cut. So it comes back up there and then manages to get to the goal. So this is pretty cool. We're excited about this work. Um, this is, uh, in a sense, real-world learning, uh, but being able to uh, not have a robot <laughs> uh, be able to work on this with a lot of, be able to run a, a lot of training um, examples. Last thing I'm going to talk about is our parkour environment and a continuous control agent continuous control learning algorithm. And you may have uh, seen these videos before. They, they spread fairly quickly. People like to uh, respond to them well. Let me start, though, with the inspiration behind this project, which was led by Nicholas Heese at DeepMind. The idea was to separate out proprioceptive and exteroceptive observations in the learning algorithm. 
So proprioceptive uh, means near the body, if you're not familiar with the term. And it would include things like joint angles and velocities, um, tactile sensors, and uh, positions of things in the uh, agent relative, in the body coordinate frame. As opposed to exteroceptive observations, um, things that are away from the body. So this would be anything that's in a global coordinate frame um, or task-related information, such as a goal position or vision sensors. And the idea is to separate these um, and process them separately. Um, and the paper that's cited down there below, the, the lear Learning and Transfer of Modulated Locomotor Controllers, it's a really cool paper that looks at a hierarchical, this is another hierarchical uh, approach that looks at it as a, first we need to train the um, our control over our body, over our limbs and our perception of our limbs, and then be able to use that towards some tasks, um, towards some actual task that's external. Um, and that worked very well to separate these here. Um, here we take a simpler, a simpler architecture. It's not hierarchical, but it does have these separate prop processing streams for proprioception, um, and those proprioceptive inputs, and then we separately process the external observations, and these are processed also at a separate time scale. Uh, so the external observations of the terrain are slower than the internal observations of the body. Um, we process these and then fuse them, concatenate them together, and uh, this is trained using proximal policy optimization. Um, with matched policy gradient, a trust region, and we have uh, come up with a high-performance implementation that uses many workers and synchronous uh, updates. And the environment here is, is really a lot of fun. Uh, so this was built in Mujoko, and it is a set of procedural terrain blocks. So each of these blocks is um, constructed um, has some random some some random element to them, and there's a lot of different things here. So there's walls to climb over, there's obstacles to go around or to slalom around, there's hills and there's height fields, etc. And we looked at three different types of bodies. There's a quadruped uh, ant or spider or something. Um, there's a planar walker and there's the humanoid. And the interesting thing here is that this is quite simple. And it only uses a single uniform reward for any of the bodies and any of the terrains that are used uh, based on forward progress. And there's also a cost placed on, uh, um, on energy usage. And the results that we get are surprisingly specific. You might think that after training on all of these diverse things that you would just learn some sort of a muddled average policy, mean policy over all of these things. But you actually get a remarkable degree of uh, very specific um, policies that emerge for these different types of challenges. The planar walker only exists in, in 2D, as the name implies, so it's uh, easier to train than, than the full humanoid. And so it goes smoothly between these different challenges without needing to have anything in the architecture or in the training or any signals that tell it um, that it should do something different. <laughs> Let's take a quick look at the quadruped. There's two different tasks here. So in the bottom there we have the quadruped and we have these increasingly um, uh, these increasing gaps that it needs to jump across. So as the as this particular episode goes on, then the terrain blocks that are used are get harder and harder um, in a curriculum fashion. The one on the top is struggling; it is nowhere near as good as the planar walker at getting over these uh, these different obstacles, um, but it does uh, it, it is trying.
Some of the things that we noticed um, in the experiments that Nicholas did, first on the left here, we compared using a curriculum and having no curriculum. So we can take an episode and we can put together uh, these set of blocks and we can either have it be of random difficulty, which often works extremely well, uh, to, to training, um, or we can have it be increasing difficulty. And actually increasing difficulty uh, works better, um, just results in higher performance, which is not something that we always see. Uh, in a lot of our environments, it works. the first condition works better if we have no curriculum and simply mix up easy to hard permutations. And on the right there, we see the advantage, a very strong advantage, to training on hurdles versus training on flat terrain and then uh, being able to have more robustness to the other terrain variations, uh, which, which makes sense. If we train on something harder, we're going to be better at, at other hard things. Let's take a look at the humanoid. The humanoid is a lot more challenging. It's 27 DOFs and 21 actuators, uh, and you, you'll note that the arms are not used for these tasks, so clearly the um, agent doesn't know what to do with its arms. You've probably mostly all see this, seen this. This has been watched millions of times, but I don't get tired of it. Right. So it doesn't know what to do with its arms, clearly. But note that it does a, a very nice job going over even these quite complex uh, height fields um, before, before falling. So the question is why it has that particular uh, arm motion, actually. I think that there's two explanations here. One is that it's actually using it as a, as a pendulum um, in order to, to help itself move. <laughs> Idiosyncratic is, is, a good, is a good name for it. Um, another explanation is, however, it does like to have its arms fully extended um, because it reduces variance in the model and uh, training is, is, uh, is better. The performance is more stable if you have less variance in the system. So it does tend to like to extend its arms, but then use them as a, as a pendulum for some of the tasks as well. Another interesting thing is that we can transfer, we can take this, uh, this, this humanoid that's been trained, and then we can test it on new terrain types that it's never seen before. So it's seen lots of terrains, but it's never seen ground that moves, and it's able to simply run across it. In fact, it can still run across this moving, this seesaw terrain, if you apply forces, uh, perturbations to the torso. That's what those, uh, this is the same thing as kicking big dog, pushing the, the humanoid. And on the other side here is, uh, is the humanoid enthusiastically heading uphill, it has never seen this, this type of terrain um, either. All right, so that's the end of my talk. These are all of the papers uh, that, I, that I talked about, and I hope that, that you enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu au forward slash ife and we're also on twitter at ife underscore qt and also on instagram at ife.qt we really hope you enjoyed this ife podcast